You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This is Matt Cousineau, also known as Master Codebreaker from the Canobite Players Club, and you are listening to I Rebel, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. Forgery of Imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault. State your name for the record. Jen Arsen. We have a mission for you. I want to help. Good. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. Every day they grow stronger. There isn't much time. I rebel. Welcome everyone to I Rebel. I am your host, Jedi Geek Girl. Gen Con has now concluded, and wow, what a surprise. In this episode, we are going to talk about the North American Championships and experience so far at Store Championships. Before we dive into our podcast proper, we would like to give a huge shout out to one of our patrons. This week's shout out goes to Robert. Robert is one of our patrons from the UK and has been a long-time supporter of Ivy Bell. Thank you, Robert, and the rest of our patrons for your support. It is because of you that this podcast is made possible. To find out more information about our Patreon program, including how to get our one-of-a-kind tokens, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Destiny. Hello, Rebels. Lassie here. iRebel is also brought to you by Artificery.com, your place to go for Star Wars Destiny products. Check out our website, and if you decide to purchase any Star Wars Destiny product, please use the word Jedi Geek Girl, one word, at checkout to help sponsor iRebel. Pick up some Star Wars Destiny product and help support the show all at the same time. Win-win, right? Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Back to you, Jedi Geek Girl. Joining me for this episode is an old friend. He is the founder of the Canto Bite Player Club, ladies and gentlemen, Matt. Hey everybody, how's it going? It's going good. It's warm up here and we were talking before the show began about our locations and the heat and Canada is actually warm. Yeah, it's really hot right now. In fact, there's been a bunch of heat warnings. So yeah, it's been extremely hot and humid. Unfortunately, even though it's felt humid out in the kind of outskirts of Ontario where I'm from, it's been extremely dry and there's like a massive amount of forest fires right now. It's actually comparable to what's going on in California. So a little bit of a scary time, but yeah, the heat's been kind of crazy. That is quite scary. I know that I am not familiar with your situation, but are you at risk at it? Not where I live, no, but like the major artery highway between like the northern part of Ontario that connects basically all of southern Ontario, which is where like a third of Canada's entire population lives. The fire is only a few kilometers away from that highway now. So there's been talks about closing that highway, which would cause a massive disruption in all sorts of things, whether it's basically transportation of goods and services to the north. I assume that things wouldn't get too badly disrupted, but they're definitely would be an effect to the economy, um, at least for a short term. 
That is absolutely crazy because I know that Canada is full of stereotypes with the American culture and the fact that we are talking right now and you are bringing up that Canada gets warm. I joke about it, but that is really surprising that you deal with forest fires because I'm in Minnesota, so obviously we haven't had much of an issue with it. This year it's actually been kind of wet up here in Minnesota. I am always like, it's always wet and cold. It's kind of weird, but forest fires are really serious and a good portion of the population don't know that. Yeah, for sure. You'd have to drive, like if you went south from where I am, you're like a six hour drive to Buffalo, which is the border like directly south. But if you go west over to Sault Ste. Marie, it's only about three hours to the border, which is directly west of here. And that's where the American borders start just northwest of the Great Lakes. So there's a ton of spots in North Dakota and some of those northern states that's actually further north than where I am and where most of southern Ontario is like Toronto and all those cities. So yeah, there's a huge chunk of your country and my country that geographically is not all that different. Like I said, I am sending you my best, but let's dive into a podcast proper. Before we talk about Star Wars Destiny, can you share with us a little bit about yourself outside of Star Wars and Star Wars Destiny? Sure. So I guess I'll start with my family. I've got a beautiful wife and an amazing young boy named Charlie. So he's 19 years old and it's a Sunday that we're recording a Sunday afternoon. So I snuck away to the quietest room in my house in the basement, but you may hear some screams and some laughing or some fun shenanigans happening in the background. So if you do hear some of that, it's just my little boy having some fun with his mom and his grandma on a Sunday afternoon. So yeah, that takes up a huge part of my life. My little boy, Destiny is obviously a huge passion of mine that I commit a lot of my spare time to. I'm also a huge sports fanatic, mostly hockey. There's another Canadian stereotype for you. I'm also a huge Blue Jays fan. If I know a lot of you Americans like baseball, so I'm a huge Blue Jays fan. But yeah, my first passion is probably sports and hockey and gaming is probably a close second. Yeah, so that's a little bit about me. I'm also, um, in terms of my career, I'm an ambulance dispatcher. So that's a really interesting job that from time to time can get a little crazy. I guess that's one thing that's a little bit more interesting about me that people might not know. I don't know if I knew that about you, about being a ambulance dispatcher. That is nice of you to share that. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been doing it for about a year and a half, and I think I fell into what will probably end up being my career at this point. I was in sales for the first kind of decade of my adulthood and decided to get out of that, and I'm really enjoying this. It feels like you're making a little bit of a difference, and it's a rewarding job that is interesting and different from day to day as well. So yeah, enjoy it. We have a lot to dive into in this episode, so let's dive right in. Our first topic is going to be about the Cantobite Players Club. So let's start at the beginning. What is the Cantobite Players Club? The Cantobite Players Club originally started as a little bit of a different approach with the Chance Cube. So obviously Jason and the gang, they have a great show, but it's not extremely competitively geared. So it's a little bit more casual and fun. Talks about Destiny news and it does talk about some of the decks and stuff, but doesn't really do a deep dive into like strategy and decks and those types of things. So Jason and I decided that it would be fun for the Chance Cube to have a little bit more of a competitive edge or at least a competitive wing. So Jason asked me if I wanted to start my own show and just kind of make it a more competitively based intensive type of show. So yeah, so the Candlebite Players Club started as a show where we would discuss what the top decks in the meta were. We would discuss decks and cards and really dive deep into the strategy of Star Wars Destiny. I still do that. I have guests on on a regular basis. I try to get some of the top players in the world on and do interviews with them and talk about their decks. I recently had Mess who came in 
second at Worlds and first in the European Championships on. I had him on a couple of times. I had Dan and Steve Castle, who were, you know, some of the best Canadian players. Steve actually won the Canadian Nationals. I had him on. So it started as this competitively focused podcast. And then I started to see like, you know, the Hyperloops and Artificery and some of these other groups. They basically had teams where they would play test together and work together and develop decks together. And then they would go to events together and encourage each other and help each other out and that sort of thing. And although I had that a little bit with a few of my friends and maybe a few people online that I would run into on a regular basis on TTS, but nothing formal in terms of like, okay, we're a team and we're going to work together. So I kind of pitched the idea to Jason to have an official Chance Cube competitive team where we would go to events and represent Candlebite Players Club in the Chance Cube. Obviously, hopefully put a good showing, put up some good numbers in terms of victories. And more than anything, I just wanted a group of people that we could really test with and encourage each other and work together. So that's kind of been one of the focuses of the Candlebite Players Club is to kind of help each other out and help each other become better players. More than anything, just enjoy the game more for the people who really like that competitive edge. And one of the key things that we feel is really important is to do all that extremely respectfully and humbly. I think it's really easy for good players to not easy. I guess it's sometimes common for really good players to not be all that humble or not have that level of respect. We wanted the Candlebite Players Club to be extremely approachable, a group of people that would be fun to play with and against. Obviously, when you sit down at the table across from us, we want to be feared, but we also want to have fun. And at the end of the game, we want to shake hands and part as friends. And that's been one of the main focuses for the Candlebite Players Club as well. You mentioned that one of the key decisions of forming the Candlebite Players Club was a competitive approach with your podcast. When you were first coming up with the idea of how you wanted to do your podcast, were there any influence to the layout of your podcast or any main ideals that you wanted to focus on? At first, there probably wasn't as much of a game plan in terms of a focus. It was more like, let's just talk competitive destiny. And I had had some co-hosts on and some guests on, and we would just talk competitive destiny, what's going on in the world of destiny. And then it started with the fact that my favorite type of podcast to listen to was when somebody sat down with a winner or somebody who placed really high at an event, and they talked about who they faced, what they faced, what's in their deck, why it's in their deck, what they would change, how their event went. Are they going to play the same deck next time? How do they think destiny? Like, how do they think about the game and plays and things like that? When I heard podcasts and interviews with top level players, that was my favorite type of show. And so without actually planning for it, my show kind of morphed into that. I just sought out good players and said, hey, like, come talk to me about destiny. I want to know about your deck. I want to know about how you play it. And then lately for the last couple of months, it's been almost exclusively that where I would have just top level players on and people who attended events like European championships. So I had an episode with Klaus from Your Destiny and Simon Willis from Sith Holocron. One of them TO'd European championships and one of them played. So I had a really good interview and show with those two talking about what was really good at that tournament and what did well and what were in the decks, that sort of thing. So the show kind of just morphed into that. 
that naturally without kind of planning for it. And I think the show is in a good place now. I don't do it as often as I would like to. Like the goal was to do it bi-weekly, but with life and kids and shift work, it's been a little bit tougher. I try to get one out at least every three weeks. Also, because the show has morphed into that, it's a little bit tougher to do a weekly or bi-weekly show when what I really want to do is just sit down with top players from some of the major events that are going on because they're not happening every single week, right? Necessarily. I completely understand. Doing a podcast is a huge commitment, especially doing one weekly. While bi-weekly you are cutting your work in about half, it still takes a lot of time to commit and to do. It does for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the editing is, you know, setting the show up and actually sitting down with somebody is some work. Finding a time slot and sitting down and a quiet place in your house. None of us have a studio that we go to. This isn't our jobs, right? You know, I'm sitting in a spare bedroom in my house right now just to find a quiet corner to be able to record. That's a challenge in itself. And then editing. Editing takes twice as long typically as the recording process. So that's another one to three hours of work that has to go in to it as well. So not always easy for us to find that time. I give a huge amount of credit to the shows, including yours, that do it way more often because that's that's a ton of work and a ton of commitment. Editing is the fun part though, because you are taking your recording and like I mentioned in the last episode, it is like a puzzle. You are rearranging pieces, you are working on it. It's basically a form of art in my opinion, because you're taking something and you are crafting it into something that is linear or like you would think that editing a podcast would be quite simple. You just edit here and there. But if you do choose so, you can take it to the next level with like music and bumpers and constructing sentences. It's just so much fun and can be rewarding. It is very time consuming. I know I put a lot of time into my editing and Shuki does his, but no matter how much editing you do, I think that that is one of the most rewarding parts of doing the podcast because we can just sit down and talk whatever and put it out there. But investing your time into crafting it into something that is listenable is really poignant and is very, I would say one of the most important parts of doing content creation outside of putting it out there, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And it's super rewarding when you throw it out there and you get feedback and people kind of message you and say, great show, or I really enjoyed that episode or things like that. So definitely rewarding and a lot of fun. At the end of the day, it's a lot of work, but it's part and parcel with the passion that we have, I think, for Star Wars Destiny and gaming. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it, right? Exactly. And before we move on, I have one last question I would like to ask you about this. You mentioned that you are part of a team. Obviously, you are the voice of your podcast and your brand. But who are the other members of your team? The members of the team are myself. We have, as I mentioned before, Dan and Steve Castle. Steve is the Canadian national champ. Dan was top four at Canadian nationals. Dan also won a regional. Steve, I believe, came in second at the regional that I won. Dan was also top eight in that regional, only having lost to his brother. So those two are always at the top tables of every event that they go to and often only lose to each other. We also have Diso, if you guys have seen her on TTS. Bernetta is her name. She's a really good player and a lot of fun to work with on decks. Calden Ficklin had won the Vegas Regional with Boba 7th. He's on the team. We also have Mike Lengel, who just recently started doing his own podcast, The Mile High Club, which I highly recommend. He's on the team and recently won a store championship. Seth Taylor's on the team, also recently won a store championship. Simon Willis, Seth Holocron, as I previously mentioned, has joined the team. He and I have just become friends and worked together just naturally. And so I said, you know what? We're working together and working on decks together 
together all this time. You may as well join the team. So he did. And then we also have the team Patton, which is Dominic Patton and his father, who have made some splashes in some star championships and regionals as well. So that's kind of the core of the team. We have a good handful of regional wins. We have a Canadian national win, and I think we're up to four or five store championship wins at this point and some top cuts as well. So generally speaking, the team's doing pretty well, but more than anything, it's just been a lot of fun to be competitively minded with a group of people that you're close with and closely working together. So that's been a lot of fun. Let's dive into store championships because there has been a lot of them. How many store championships have you been able to attend? I'm currently organizing a store championship here in Sudbury, Ontario, where I'm from. We have an extremely small meta, so I scheduled it far out and invited some of my friends and people from out of town and getting a few of my friends who play casually to try and commit. If we can get six or eight people, that'll be a huge turnout for my local meta. More often than not, there ends up being two or three of us when we do events here in Sudbury. So the goal is to have six or eight for the store championship here. That'll be in mid-September, so I'm excited for that. I did managed to travel down to Toronto, which is about a four-hour drive, and stayed with Dan Castle at his place. So shout out to Dan. And the two of us and his brother Steve attended two store champs on a Saturday, Sunday. I think it was the only weekend where they had them back to back. And it was really the only way it made sense for me to travel four hours as if I was going to be able to get kind of a full weekend of gaming in. Otherwise, I'm not sure it'd be worth it to go for one store champ. On day one, I did not do well at all. I kind of made the completely wrong medical. I've been playing and testing the Built to Last decks for a long time. I really, really enjoy that plot. I think it's a lot of fun. The resource ramp is kind of crazy. And the fact that everything has redeploy makes you not have to be overly concerned with just dropping weapons left, right, and center. A lot of times you have to be a lot more careful with where you put weapons and on who. And you have to be a lot more careful with what types of weapons and what powerful weapons you put down because then that character can become a target and then you can lose that. So I took what I thought would be really good in an aggro meta or even a mid-ranged meta. I took a three-wide built-to-last deck. So it was Ray 1, Padawan, and Wookiee Warrior, all single die. And so that brought me up to 26 points and the built-to-last plot. And it just has a ton of health. It has 27 health. And it obviously is not super scary round one because it does not have a lot of damage sides. But by round two, because of the plot, I often had almost always two and sometimes even three three weapons down. By round three, it kind of reached a critical mass where I would have four or five weapons down. And even if I'd lost one or even two characters with honed skills, I would often end up winning in that round, being able to roll up that many dice. And it would just kind of outlast and out attrition any of the damage decks, even the big scary like Price Kylo decks and a lot of the super fast CAD decks that do a bunch of damage. I would basically trade a character, like I would lose my Ray or my Padawan, and then shortly thereafter, maybe in the next turn, they would lose their main character, and then I would have kind of two somewhat healthy characters versus their last character. So it just kind of was there to outlast. The problem is that 
I sat down and played against almost exclusively mill decks. <laughs> so I did not anticipate mill to be that prevalent. I knew it would be good and I knew it would show up, but three out of the, my four games were against mill. So I did not fare well at all because my ramp and my damage output was just not fast enough. My deck was built to outlast and do all my big damage in late rounds two and mostly in rounds three and four. So I did not do well and it was kind of back to the drawing board that night. Went back to Dan's place. We did a bunch of playtesting. I was trying other variations of my deck. Tried to tech in some cards to help me against Mill. And he was playing Mill. So it was helpful for us to sit down and do some testing. My day one was not great. And Dan didn't do all that well either, if I'm not mistaken. And it ended up being Kylo Snoke was three of the top four decks with a Mill deck sneaking into the top four as well. That is absolutely crazy. I know that I am not a huge fan of Mills. I would probably be miserable that day. I know that I myself, I have attended, I believe, five store championships. And for the most part, I've been pretty much playing a different deck every weekend. Because usually when a format comes, I try to find one deck that I am going to stick with for that format and constantly tinker with it. Just due to the fact that I don't have a lot of time to playtest all these different decks. And right now, I think I know what it's going to be. I think I am leaning towards Cat Snoke. I am not sure I need to play it a couple more times to really figure out if this is my deck this format. Luckily, I was able to take it to a runner-up position going undefeated until the final round against Cat and Yoda. Basically, that was kind of my fault. Yes, it's a two-player game. I am playing against my opponent and my opponent is they are an important factor and if they are going to win they are going to have to be an active part of it but I keep talking about it whenever I talk about it on podcast is you can get into your head and that is what happened to me but we learn because I find that when that happens whether you lose because you were outplayed or you lose because you went on tilt or you lose because you were disqualified because you brought the wrong plasma die that happened to me oh no you tend to think about tournaments more than if you would have won, I find. Because it's very easy to win a tournament or win a game after game after game and not think about it. So it was a blessing in disguise. Yes, I wish I would have won the store championship. Yes, I hope I can. It's really tough up here just due to all the good players up here. Pass off to the Destiny Council, which I believe are up to four or five store championships. It's crazy. I am thankful because... It helped me think about it and it helped me go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, what do I need to do and what do I need to change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no better teacher than a loss. I think actually Yoda says that in The Last Jedi and I forget the exact phrasing, but failure is the best teacher or something like that. Yes, the greatest teacher, failure is. It's a fantastic quote and one of my favorite quotes. I mean, if Yoda, there's nothing he's going to say that I don't like. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in terms of the day two, that night, Dan and I went back to his place. I had brought my whole collection just because I do, especially when I go out of town, you never know when you have a last minute thing or you want to do a draft or whatever. So I brought in all my stuff and it was not quite back to the drawing board, but it was like, what am I good with? What am I comfortable with? And what would beat Mill? And so I had tested for a short time Kanan and Ayla with Built to Last, but hadn't really given it enough time and effort to see how good it would be. 
And so that night, finally, it was like 2.30 in the morning. And then Steve called us. He had just finished a TTS top 32 match. So he called us to talk about it. So we were chatting about it. Then we started talking about how I needed to be able to beat Mill if I was going to do okay. So Steve just said, like, play what you're passionate about and play what you know, especially at a last minute thing. That's the advice he gave me. So I thought, you know, that's really good advice. I'm going to go back to the Kane and Ayla. It's a little bit different, but it plays similarly to some of the other built to last stuff. It has some action cheating with four speed and Kanan's ability. And I thought, you know, it's probably got enough tricks that I can burst down a little bit better than I did with my slower kind of three die starts, three wide decks. So I threw together a Kanan, Ayla, built to last, hone skills deck with all of the unique upgrades, including Dagger of Mortis and Ezra's lightsaber, Luke's saber, Luke's lightning rod, Master of the Council, Ray's lightsaber, and Ray's staff. It ended up being a really good decision. So I took that. I said, Dan, let's throw down once and see how it goes. And for the first time ever, I beat Dan's Yoda Ayla deck because I had never managed to beat it with my other built-to-last decks. So yeah, I was actually able to beat it. Things went well in that match, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to shut it down there. I'm feeling a lot more confident about this deck. I'm playing something I'm passionate about and something that I know, and I'm just going to bring that, even though I had limited reps with it. So yeah, I took that to the second store championship that I went to on the Sunday. I'm actually just about to record a podcast, or sorry, I did record a podcast. I'm going to be editing a podcast probably tomorrow where I sit down with Steve and we talk about it extensively. So Steve actually ended up winning that tournament. I went three and one facing once again, three out of four of my Swiss matches were mill. So out of eight Swiss matches in a weekend, six of them were against mill. So I played most of my weekend on tilt, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) But I managed to beat some of those mill decks and went three and one, only losing to Dan in day two. I played him in Swiss and Dan went three and one as well, only losing to Steve. So as a team, we did extremely well, basically only losing to each other in Swiss. And due to strength of schedule and some of my opponents got some buys or something, I'm not sure exactly how strength of schedule works, but I got the short end of the stick and ended up finishing in fifth and just missing the top cut. That is a bummer being on the bubble, but it is still a good performance. And, you know, there's the next championship or tournament that you attend to to improve those results. Yeah, exactly. Dan ended up finishing in third, losing his first match of the top cut to a mill deck. And then Steve played Mother Talzin and FN2199. So he ended up actually winning the tournament, having faced Kylo Price in the top four, and then Leia Luke Mill in the championship. That is a very interesting deck. It's one that I heard talk about here and there a little bit, but not really one that you hear talk about a lot. Yeah, I only managed to watch one game and it milled pretty quickly and was able to shield up, obviously, with Luke. The deck was decent. The match that I watched came down to the last round. I think both players had no cards left. And I think he was able to do one damage with Luke on his opponent just to win on the damage race, I believe, is how it went down. Either way, it came down to the very nitty gritty and Dan ended up losing that match. And then that player went on to play Steve and lost in the finals. But yeah, it was a really good day. We had a ton of fun. And again, we only lost to each other in Swiss, which was encouraging. It's too bad when that happens, but it is what it is. I would like to talk about the meta a little bit because it is a crazy meta. But before we do, I would like to move on to our last topic and quickly talk about Gen Con. 
Can you believe that, oh my goodness, Mill won a major event? That is absolutely crazy. Yeah, it doesn't super surprise me, if I'm honest. It felt like the month or so leading up to this, I just saw more and more and more Mill on TTS. And as Mill kind of discovered this combination of Yoda, Cassian, and Anakin, it seemed like the damage decks would struggle to do that much damage. Like the Yoda Cassian was really, really good and really strong. And if it got the right upgrades out early, there's not a whole lot you could do with the Force Speeds and the Force Meditations and Yoda Special and then the clandestine operations and then claim to remove two off your deck. Like it was just crazy. I would lose eight to 12 cards in one action. I've had that happen. So it was like, okay, scoop and move on to a game that I want to play. <laughs> so that deck was really good. The Leiota was really good. But the two wide mill decks, I think are always going to struggle against the aggro decks because if you get one good combo off or one good roll, you could just nuke a character if you're playing an aggro deck, right? And that cuts your milling in half, more or less. It cuts your game plan in half, whereas the aggro decks are still going to go full tilt till the end of the game. But when a mill deck can find that third character that makes a lot of sense, that has synergy with the rest of the deck and able to put out 27 HP plus whatever shielding and force illusions and second chances, the amount of damage you have to do is just silly. Like you have to do 40 plus damage to beat that deck. So yeah, I'm not super surprised when I heard about this pairing. I was like, okay, that could be really good. I hadn't played against it, but I'd heard about it and I'd played against a plenty of Yoda Cassian variants that I could see it being really good, especially with the synergy of Anakin and his pod racer. So yeah, I'm not surprised, but I'm not happy. I think most of the community would probably agree with me that Mill is a good thing and it needs to exist and it needs to be good, but I don't think it can be the best deck in the meta because it changes the game completely. And it's okay to change the game completely and play against a Mill deck one out of every four or five games. It's fun when a Mill player shows up and plays really well and wins, but it's not fun when 40% of the meta is Mill and half the top cut ends up being Mill. It's not a ton of fun for most people. I think, in my opinion, anyway. So yeah, I guess we'll see if the meta can adjust, but that seems like a really, really, really good deck. And if it's not the best deck in the meta, it's up there. Any good player who takes it is going to be able to do extremely well with it at any event. So that's a little bit worrisome, but we'll see. Maybe the meta adjusts and maybe they find ways to beat it. I would like to clarify that when I say that I am surprised about Mill winning a major event, I am talking about the way that the game is set up and how Mill is changing how people play the game, but it is also usually competing, at least in a major event, against a lot of decks that are trying to do as much as possible in their turn and win the game as quickly as possible with the least amount of thought points just due to the long nature of the tournament. You usually don't want to play a deck that requires a lot of thought. I think a mill deck winning a major event is good because it is a deck that takes a lot of thought. You have to be on your toes. You have to know how to play each matchup. But in the same token, if a mill deck is winning a major event, you almost have to raise your eyebrow a little bit and be like, okay, it's mill too good because you want mill to be competitive but you don't want it to be like you said the best deck in the format because i believe that it can borderline as a negative play experience i mean obviously it is balanced because you are playing within the rules of the game but mill 
isn't fun for the majority of people. Yes, getting to being out with a lot of egg roll damage isn't fun. But I don't want to say that is how the game is played, but that is the main focus of the game is the egg roll. So I think people are less turned off by it, even though it might be just as unfun. Yeah, I mean, if this ends up being the only major event that Mill wins and we're wrong and the meta adjusts and figures out how to beat it, maybe it's fine, right? But I'm seeing Mill winning like a pretty high percentage of store championships. And this is a relatively new deck. So we might see now that this deck is now in the public eye and probably more popularized now, we might be seeing it pop up all over the place and winning an even higher percentage of store championships. So we'll see. At the beginning of the meta, I thought Snoke was the problem, especially paired with Thrawn. I thought that deck was just silly and more efficient and effective than Thrawn Car ever was. So I thought maybe they would look at that. And now Mill has come out. And I think it's really important for Mill to be good because decks like Thrawn, Snoke, and vehicle decks struggle against Mill. So I think it's important for Mill to be there to keep those decks in check. And I think it's important for aggro decks to be there to keep Mill in check. I think there has to be a little bit of that rock, paper, scissors in the game. So we'll see. We'll see if the meta adjusts. But I feel like the best of the aggro decks is still going to really struggle against this version of Mill. To be fair, looking at the top eight decks, you had two mill decks, four ego decks, and you had two vehicle decks. You had two Yoda, Kazian, Anakins. One after Snoke battle droid, Kylo Price, Kylo Snoke, Mother Mando Mando, Hair Yoda Mars, which I think is amazing that Hair made top eight. Yeah, I was super excited about that. And then you had an Agro version of Yoda Cassian. I believe it was Agro. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, so that's quickly becoming a Minnesota deck. So the meta looks like it is balanced. I mean, with 2-4-2, I would consider that a win-win. I think it is a good reflection of the format. Yes, Kylo is two of the eight decks, but it's not too crazy. Mill is like two. It looks really balanced. It looks like there isn't too much of an issue. I am concerned about Mill, but these results are pretty fair. Yeah, I agree 100%. It looks really healthy. And we're talking about Mel as if it could maybe be a problem just because that's the one that ended up winning. But even watching, I only watched the top four and the championship games. I think that either of those four decks could have won depending on the player playing a little bit better or dice rolls or draws. I know that Nick Cuenca in the top four did not draw his combo of BT and triple zero in, I think, either of the two games because I think he went 0-2. But he didn't get them out early enough and wasn't able to get that burst down damage that he gets from that combo. So yeah, I think he lost Afra pretty early in both games and then was never able to get that engine running. So had he drawn it early, maybe he would have been in the top two rather than the Mando Mando deck. So I think any of those top four decks could have won, probably any of these top eight decks. When you get to that level, every game seems to be on a razor's edge. I think it's a healthy meta, and we'll see if Mill becomes too strong, but it really feels like that deck is banana strong and possibly too strong, but we'll see. I would like to give a huge shout out to the Hyperloops for crushing yet another championship event. I know Gen Con seems to be the proving ground, it seems like. You know, it's not AD doing repeat results. Yes, Joe, Bobby didn't repeat the results, but it was still representative of the team. Nick has been less accomplished than the other two and less known but he really came out at this event and it was amazing seeing a team do so well and not only the Hyperloop but 
everybody who did well at the event. I would say that it took a lot more to get into the top cut at this event than it did last year. So congratulations, everyone. And I'm looking forward to Nova. Yeah, you couldn't just play Pomaz or Rainbow Nines and just outroll your opponents. <laughs> it was a lot more skill intensive this time around, I think. It is now time to run into the final stretch of this episode before we begin our wrapping up process. Wow, it is a amazing format. I am so excited to see how it develops. I am, like I said, I'm leaning towards Cat Snoke, but there are so many different decks that you can play. I know that if I had another Cadian die, I would probably give the Yoda Cadian deck a try. But before we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts on this format? Anything you are particularly looking to? So yeah, two questions there. I guess the first one is the meta or where the game is right now. I think it's in a really, really great place. And I think that I'm still messing around with all sorts of combos and different things. I think that there's still lots of discovery to be done. And I don't think that we found the best decks in the meta yet. A really interesting thing is that with a shorter window between releases this time around, it's going to be interesting to see if we even get there before the next set drops. That'll be interesting to see. But I think the meta is in a really strong place. I think the game's in a strong place. And there's lots of options and lots of different decks winning. And I've been able to take all kinds of different decks to the table. And I get crushed with some and I do well with others. And sometimes it's vice versa, you know, depending on what you're facing and what the person's experimenting with. It just feels still really wide open right now. Even after seeing the results of Gen Con, I still feel like it's wide open and there's lots of possibilities. And then speaking of possibilities, my two main decks that I'm working on right now one is the Kane and Ayla built to last. I've been working on it since the store champ that I went to. And I think that the deck is probably a good 20 or 30% better than it was when I sat down that day and played those games. Just having tested it and tweaked it, I think it's way better now than it was at the time. So the other deck that I've been working on, I call Space Orphans. It's the deck that I think could be really solid. It's called Space Orphans because it has Ray 1, Ezra 2, and Orphan Annie. So all three with parental issues or no parents at all. So that's why it's called Space Orphans. And it plays a little bit like the five die villains because it has five dice to start. Four of them have solid damage sides. The one twos, both from Ezra and Ray and Anakin. I guess the main crux of this deck is that Ray's dice was always a little bit of an issue, right? Because she had that plus two, which didn't always pair well. And she had the plus one resource that didn't always pair well. But with her at two dice and with Anakin in this deck, there's an abundance of resource sides showing in round one. And I've been able to pair that plus one more often than not just by rolling out Anakin. So the deck actually ramps really, really well in the first couple of rounds, especially round one. If you want to focus on just getting resources and picking up whatever you roll, I think the deck ramps really, really well. It has a decent amount of health. It's three wide. It has yellow in there with Anakin for some of those yellow events that are really important. And then it just has a bunch of cheap upgrades. So I run the Ancient Lightsabers, Ezra Bridger's Lightsaber, Luke Skywalker's Lightning Rod, and Vibro Knives. And then I have a Dagger of Mortis and I have Ray's Lightsaber in terms of three drops. The deck runs pretty cheap, but basically just spams out dice. 
there's often like two or three weapons out by round two and four or five weapons out by round three. So again, it's a deck that kind of ramps into a lot of upgrades. There's also Maz's Goggles in here. And then the thing that I think makes this deck really good is kind of a combo of the following. So I run Rigged Detonation in here, which is one of my favorite new cards from the new set. I'll let you guys kind of figure it out, but I run Rigged Detonation. I run Power of the Force. So power of the force is that I can resolve a die and treat its value equal to the amount of blue upgrades I have in play. So with all of the blue upgrades, including force illusion and force speed, I can usually use that for three, four, and sometimes even five. So that's like a huge combo piece that is relatively easy to get off. Even in round two, you can often have three or four out there. So Rig Detonation and Power of the Force are two big kind of splashy events that can do a lot of damage. The thing that I think makes this deck really good is Rebel. Anakin, Ezra, and Ray, five dice, all have a discard side. If I roll out these characters, I'm almost guaranteed to have a discard side showing on one of those dice, which means that I can reoccur Rig Detonation, I can reoccur Power of the Force, and I can reoccur my removal, and I can even reoccur Vibroknives from my discard pile using that card if I need the action cheating onto Ray. So there's just a lot of tricks that the deck can play, and it reoccurs a lot of the splashy events, and it can even reoccur your mitigation in a pinch if you really need to remove dice. So the deck's just really flexible, it spams a lot of dice, and does a lot of ones and twos that add up really fast so it's really fun it's got some health and i think it might be good enough to compete with the top decks it definitely sounds like a really interesting deck and it seems like a deck that is right up your alley knowing the deck that you played at world and basically what i have known you to play it definitely seems like a deck that is right up your alley yeah, absolutely. The decks that really speak to me are the decks that can do the big, splashy, fun turns where you can like nuke a character out of nowhere. They don't even see it coming, right? Like my favorite play is if you have Maz's Goggles and Force Speed out there. Like if you have Maz's Goggles and Force Speed on the table, it's super common for them to be showing a special and a focus, right? Because there's lots of those sides on those dice. If you have a Power of the Force in hand, you can do a Force Speed. Your first action is to play Power of the force on the Maz's goggles to turn three, four, or sometimes five of your dice decides showing damage, and then you use your second action to resolve that damage. So that's the type of play that you're often able to pull off if you have those upgrades out there. So there's just lots of synergy with the character dice all having discard sides with Rebel. So even if I've already used my power of the force and I have Rebel in hand, I can often do the exact same thing. So yeah, it's a deck with big splashy plays, and I found it to be really consistent because of Rebel, I've been able to pull those off more often than you would expect. I am looking forward to hearing more about the deck, perhaps seeing like a deck list if you share. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So beginning our wrapping up process, before we let you go, we would like to ask you three quick shotgun questions. Are you ready? Shoot. The first question is, what is one card in Star Wars Destiny that you think is underrated? Having played and discovered Power of the Force recently enough, It was actually at Worlds when Dan, and I guess this isn't Shotgun because I'm telling a story now. But anyways, Dan was at Worlds with me and he has suggested that maybe I swap out some of my gray and yellow upgrades and just go all blue and play Power of the Force. I wasn't willing to make that kind of change last minute at Worlds. But since then, I've tested it and that card is bananas. Like, I don't know why mono blue decks don't just autoplay it. So Power of the Force, underrated. 
The next question is, what is one canon Star Wars character that you would like to see in Star Wars Destiny that has not yet been featured in the game? Man, having listened to your show, you'd think that I would be prepared for these questions. <laughs> but I'm prepared for very little in my life, to be honest. I'm just trying to think of what some of my favorite stuff is. I'm a huge fan of Clone Wars. It might be cool to see some of the clone characters. Like, I know there's Fives, and I'm blanking on some of their other names. Echo, Heavy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a handful. There's like four or five kind of reoccurring clone trooper characters in Clone Wars. It would be kind of fun to see them come out and maybe have synergy together if you had like, I don't know, Rex with Heavy and Fives, right? Like, how cool would that be? So anyways, maybe that would be cool. I'd also love to see, I'm a huge fan of Asajj Ventress and super disappointed with her card so far. So it'd be really cool to see a really good, strong Asajj deck. I hope we see the clones, especially with the Clone Wars coming back. But moving on to a final question. What Awakening Psycho card would you like to see get reprinted that has not yet been reprinted? Hmm, that's a really good question. Part of me wants to say Force Speed, to be honest. I'm not sure they will because it seems like they're really going away from action cheating. Or maybe they reprint Force Speed and it costs one. Maybe something like that would be good. I'm a huge fan of that card, and I think that having two actions on a die that you have to roll out and hit a special, like you have to hit it, and then it can be mitigated, I don't think it's a totally broken card. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that card. Force Speed, that's my answer. I go back and forth on it just due to the fact that it's good to have a action sheet card, but I think you can get into it too quickly with special chaining, so perhaps if it had some sort of restriction, like they could probably do Force Speed again, but redo it like it can be force adrenaline or something like that with the same effect but some sort of balance or whatever i would like to see because we need action cheating especially in a mill format but it can't be too easy to get into which i think is the problem with the card right now yeah if it costs one or it costs like it costs zero but you have to pay a resource or discard a card or an extra cost to be able to resolve it or something like that just a small tiny thing to maybe balance it a little bit but even as is, I don't think it's totally broken because it's still a die. It's still something you have to put out there first. And then once it's out there, it still has to hit the special and then it can't be mitigated for you to be able to use it. So out of all of the action cheating cards in the game, I think force speed is one of the ones that's the least problem. It's not something that's automatic compared to Sabine, compared to CAD, compared to three steps ahead. Those are cards that are a little bit more automatic. Like you have them, you play them. Your opponent does not have an opportunity to see it coming or do anything about it. Whereas force speed, you have to get it out there. Your opponent knows it's coming before it gets out there. Like I said, I think the problem with it is it's too easily chained into. I think if you didn't have Yoda and Ayla and maybe Mars, I don't think it would be too much of a problem. I think the problem is that you can very easily chain into it with no interaction. It is now time to wrap things up. Thank you, Matt, for coming on and talking some Star Wars Destiny with me. It has been a blast, and I know that we had a lot to say in this episode because, wow, there was a lot to talk about. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Sorry if I was um, a little long-winded. I have a history and a reputation for doing that. But yeah, I had a lot of fun. It's much appreciated for you to have me on. Before we let you go, if people would like to contact you, where can they find you? You can email me at uh, matt 
That's Matt with one T. So Matt at thechancecube.com. You can find me. I'm on all the Star Wars Destiny Facebook pages or Facebook groups. So if you want to find me there, I'm on most of the discords. I can be found there. My handle on TTS and on Discord is Codebreaker. So that's one way for you to find me as well. And I'm always down to chat Destiny and always down to play some games. So if you want to come find me or talk about Destiny or talk about some of these decks, I'm happy to do that with you. That concludes this episode of Ivy Bell. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you all next time. Jedi Geek Girl, out! This has been Ivy Bell, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. I have been your host, Jedi Geek Girl. If you would like to contact me, please send me an email at ivybelldestiny at gmail.com. And as always, may the force be with you. Bell is an independent podcast, not associated with Lucasfilm, Disney, Fantasy Flight Games, or any other organization. All copyrights for Star Wars, Star Wars Destiny, and all other properties belong to the proper copyright holders.